0: You probably realize that every culture has its own wisdom literature. The Chinese are famous for their ancient proverbs. Let me read a few to you. He who strikes the first blow admits he's lost the argument. If you don't have anything else to argue about and you're losing, just bring out the fist. A rat who gnaws at the cat's tail invites destruction. Okay, I see that. How about this one? Do not remove a fly from your friend's forehead with a hatchet. (laughs) That's not intuitive for me to do anyway. But I think it's, if your friend has a fly, in other words, he has a small problem, let's not use a hatchet to remove a small problem. If you are patient in one moment of anger, if you are patient in one moment of anger, you will escape a hundred days of sorrow. Americans, we have our own wisdom literature, perhaps the most well-known attributed to Ben Franklin. A penny saved is a penny earned. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. If it seems too good to be true, then it's probably too good to be true. Every culture has these sayings, these proverbs, their they're wisdom literature. They sort of just get uh, drawn together in a culture, and truths come from these little uh, small phrases and the Bible contains wisdom literature. It's five books in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, your Old Testament is divided into five different sections. One of those sections is called Wisdom and Poetry. It's the five books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And the purpose of the Old Testament biblical wisdom literature is to teach you how to live well, to, to live with skill in this world Before God and man. So, the primary purpose is how do I live in this world? How do I navigate myself through this world? I need some wisdom. I need some direction. I need some boundaries in some sense. And the wisdom literature comes in and tells you how to live with skill in this world before God and man. And so, my goal for us this summer is to make progress in wisdom. We get to the end of uh, August, the end of the series. You're going to be wiser for having attended. So just think about that as an energizing thing as you wake up on Sunday morning. I'm going to gain some wisdom. I'm going to learn how to live with more skill in this world before God. Man, and maybe you're a a middle school or high school student. You have a summer reading assignment. I would implore you. I would encourage you just make Ecclesiastes one of the books. It's only 12 chapters. But just say, hey, I've got a summer reading assignment. I'm going to make Ecclesiastes one of those books. You'll get a lot more out of that than probably a number of the books that you might be assigned. Sorry, any teacher who might be here. Uh, Prior to our progress in wisdom, I want to make a few observations that might be helpful to us. First, wisdom literature often communicates principles, not promises. Wisdom literature often communicates a principle, not a promise. Train up a child in the way he shall go and what? and He will not stray far from it. Is that a principle or is that a promise? That's a principle. It's not an absolute guarantee that every child raised in one particular envir- environment will never stray and, and, and come back. That's not... Not, not a, a promise, it's a principle. So when you read through the wisdom literature, a lot of those things are principles, not promises. Secondly, wisdom literature, especially poetry, which these first 11 verses in Ecclesiastes are, are meant to be read slowly, like a poem. You're, you're supposed to absorb sort of the, the imagery in the poem. You're supposed to understand the mood of the person writing the literature So if you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it talks about uh, people reaching the end of their days. And it says, before the sun and the light of the moon and the stars are darkened. See, I'm, I'm getting to the end of my day. The sun is about ready to set. Strong men are bent. See, these young, strong, vibrant men, at the end of their days, they're they're bent. The grinders cease. The people who are milling the, the wheat. They're, there's so few of them now. The doors of the street are shut. One rises up at the sound of a bird there. I don't hear that much anymore. I've gotten older. And if I hear the sound of a bird, I, I'm paying attention. The grasshopper drags itself along. So when you're reading those things, the, the, the writer is trying to evoke some sort of emotion, trying to set a, a tone or create a mood. And so that's what you want to be aware of. Third thing, you want to pay attention to repetition. Of course, this is true of any uh, literature in the Bible, but specifically true here. And you see it, vanity or meaningless, meaninglessness, it appears 38 times in the book. The word toil. Appears 32 times in the book. Under the sun. That phrase occurs 26 times in the book. So there's a a repetition. Something that the, the writer wants you to see. He wants you to be aware of these things. And then this word joy or rejoice breaks out like a repetitive chorus throughout the book. If you if you look every couple of chapters, there's a little segment about joy and rejoicing. It's like a chorus. You sing through and you get to a point and he says, but let's rejoice. And then you kind of sing through another darker period. And but let's remember to rejoice. And it comes back like a chorus over and over in the book. And we'll see that as we Go along well with these things in mind. Let's take our first steps down the trail towards wisdom as we look at these opening verses, and then we'll we'll peek ahead. We'll sort of we'll begin our study of Ecclesiastes with the end in mind. That's the purpose of looking at chapter 12, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Now some of your uh, versions might have teacher, or Solomon. Or Kohelet. Kohelet is the Hebrew word for what this person is. And there's a lot of uh, debate in biblical scholars as to who this person actually is. Many people think it's Solomon. Because he was indeed the son of David. He was a king in Jerusalem. But some people think it's a later writer who sort of assumed his persona, assumed his wisdom and wrote this book sometime after Solomon was dead. And whatever the case may be, this, this person, this sort of mysterious, wise man named Kohelet, he's a preacher, he's a teacher. And if you look at the very end of the, uh, the text in chapter 12, he says this about himself. I'm weighing, I'm studying, I'm arranging my words, my words of delight, my words of truth. So this, this, this person, he's a, he's a wordsmith, he's a professional, he's a, he's a pro. And he hasn't just randomly wrote, written some things down. He's carefully crafted this particular book of wisdom. He's chosen words. He's chosen phrases. He's, he's chosen moods so you can understand what he's trying to get at. And he's done it all to drive you or to draw you to a particular conclusion. And then we see in chapter, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, the main thrust of what he wants to say. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, everything, it's all vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you're in seminary, when you go to seminary, you take a number of classes, Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology. One of the classes you take is a preaching class, and it's called homiletics. That's the scholarly term for your preaching classes. So when you come to a homiletics class and you have your homiletics Uh, Professors teaching these young, would be preachers. One of the main things the homiletics professor will say was when you get to a text and you're going to preach a text, let's try to have one main idea, one big idea that sort of dominates your sermon. Or maybe you're, you're going to ask a question and your, your sermon is dominated by trying to answer this particular question. Or you want to make a particular point so you're going to repeat it over and over and over again. And I'm guessing that the preacher of Ecclesiastes excelled in his homiletics course. He got an A, I'm sure. Why is that? Well, because here in these first two verses, he's got his big idea. He's got his question. He's got his his theme that he repeats over and over again, all the way through from the very beginning to the very end. He sort of confronts in, in what sounds like a, a loud voice. He, he cries out to his congregation, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. And he repeats that phrase over and over and over again. And he's trying to answer this question. When I toiled, when I did all this for gain, what was it worth? It all seemed meaningless. I spent my whole life working for these things. And then I got to the end and it all just seemed like a a vapor, a mist. It seemed like it was vanity. Vanity. So he's, he's stating his, his question up front. He's giving you this one big idea. He's going to repeat it over and over and over again. And the word he uses that we translate often as meaninglessness or vanity is Havel. H-A-V-E-L is not the way it's spelled, but it's the way it sounds in the Hebrew. Havel. It's, a, it's really a multidimensional word. It can mean Vanity. It can mean meaninglessness, but it can also mean a mist, like a fog. So life seems like a fog at different points or things in life seem like a fog. Have you ever been in the in the mountains of North Carolina called the Smoky Mountains? And you, you get in a big fog bank rolls in and it seems so substantial. But when you go into it, what it's. It's just a mist. It's, there's nothing really to hold on to, and life often feels like that. Like some big event is on the horizon, but then when I get there and try to grasp it, it's it's like trying to grasp the fog. It's just a it's a mist. Or another way to think of this word, habel, is is a breath. Oh, the breath is here. It's right now. It's important, but it quickly goes away. And it's replaced by another. And, and it's replaced by another. There's so many of them. Any one just seems like vanity. No matter how important that particular breath is, it's, it's a breathtaking moment. It's just a moment and then the breath is gone and it's replaced by another moment and another moment and another moment until they all add up to vanity. Vanity. And like every good preacher who wants to highlight this main point, Koheleth, or the preacher, the teacher, he piles up these illustrations. If he had a PowerPoint, if they had PowerPoint back then, he'd say, okay, let me show you this PowerPoint. Because he just, one illustration after another to try to prove that life seems like a pointless exercise on a treadmill at times. Verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You may have heard about it, especially since the um, anniversary, 70th anniversary of D-Day. Tom Brokaw wrote really an excellent book uh, several years ago called The Greatest Generation. And, and, and it was detailing the people who lived between the Great Depression and World War II. And he was saying that period of time made up... The greatest generation. And and indeed they did some remarkable things. Yet the preacher tells us. No matter how great the generation is. The generation comes. And the generation goes. Each generation. They're like a, a wave. On the shoreline of time. It crashes on it. Makes this big sound. It foams up and it spreads out. Trying to make its mark. And then it quickly recedes. And it looks as if it hasn't even been there. And it's quickly replaced by this, this next generation that tries to make its mark. It's trying to leave its legacy. It's trying to stretch out even further. But no matter how far it reaches, it, it just quickly recedes. One generation comes and goes. Whether you're a baby boomer or Gen X or you're a millennial. And you're all trying to make a difference. You're trying to leave a legacy. Look in verse 11. There, there's no remembrance. No matter how big the splash, no, how, no matter how far you stretch out, eventually you're just not remembered. Unless you're a regular on Ancestry.com, and some of you probably are, but if you're not, if you're not you probably can't say the names of any of your relatives even four or five generations ago. Who's your great, great, great granddad? I don't know. One of them was Philip somewhere back in there. But I don't know. What about 10 generations, 15 generations? See, you don't remember. And, and they were making their splash. They were sitting in their church. They were working in their town. They were stretching out, trying to make a legacy, trying to leave a mark. But they've receded and they've receded in such a way you, you can't really even remember that they existed. The preacher then extends this vapor-like quality of humanity, saying in verse 11, of later things. See, uh, of, of these former things, they, they're not remembered. But let's look ahead. Of the things that are coming ahead, the things that are going to make a big splash, the, the new development in technology, guess what? They're not going to remember, be remembered either. Even the things that are ahead eventually will fade Now, we live in a culture consumed by self-promotion. We live in a society, as Warren Bennis, the leadership writer, calls, it has terminal egocentricity. (laughs) I love that phrase. Terminal egocentricity. It's terminal. It's going to kill you. What is it? Being centered on myself. And that's the kind of culture, that's the kind of soup we all live in. It's not any of us are separated from that. And, and we live in this place. And the sermons, the, the preacher's sermon, if you live in that kind of culture and you come through and you hear vanity of vanity, it's like walking through the door and somebody puts some cold ice water on your face. <laughs> no! How could it be? Vanity of vanity. I mean, I'm on Facebook. How is it that I could possibly be forgotten? I'm promoting myself in my life every day. I'm chronicling it. And it's certainly going to be saved on my computer. And I'm sure the world is going to want to see it again in a hundred years. What I did today, I had a donut and went to this place. (laughs) I've got friends. I've got followers. When I post something, do you have any idea how many likes that I have when I post it? See, I've got something, I'm substantial, I'm not one of these waves that are going to just have a small break. I'm going to make a big splash, and and when the big splash is over, people are going to remember. And the preacher throws a bucket of cold water on that and says, (laughs) I don't know if you're on Facebook, or I don't know if you have followers, or friends, or likes, but you're a lot more like Snapchat." You're a little five second photo. Yeah, you show up, it looks fancy, but in five seconds, you're gone. And guess what? You're replaced by another photo of somebody else. Look at the uh, analogies. You know the, the Snapchat? Uh, only half of you know this, but the Snapchat icon. What is it? It's a ghost. It's a little happy ghost. But what a perfect icon. It's just a vapor. It's like a ghost. You think it's substantial. It's this great picture of this moment in time. But when you try to reach out and grab it, it's like a vapor. It just quickly fades away. And so he uses these analogies. Again, he's piling up these pictures. Verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it it hastens, it's in a hurry to the place. What place? Well, to the place that it just was, it's rising again. Ernest Hemingway used these verses for his title, The Sun Also Rises. But around and around the sun goes, yet it never reaches its destination. It seems to be in a hurry, it's chasing itself. Where? Well, right back to where it started. Or you're like the wind. The wind is coming at you and it's going and then it's coming back around and it's going. It's just a cycle. It's like a treadmill. I can't seem to get off of it. There's never a destination. There's never an end point. Or in verse 7, like a stream that runs into the sea, but the sea is not full. And I could imagine uh, Solomon or the preacher, whoever this is, he's, he's looking at the river Jordan. And it has this mighty flow into a terminal sea. It's called the Dead Sea. There's no outlet for the Dead Sea. And he notices the water never stops flowing into the sea, but the sea never is full. And he's looking at these things, and he's, he's saying life under the sun is like a, a giant treadmill. You work for a company your whole life, and at the end... I mean, you're easily replaced. People hardly remember that you were there. I think about the high school seniors. I mean, you come back next year to a homecoming. Oh, yeah. What's your name? What was, what, weren't you here? Were you here? Was it last year you were here? I can't remember. See, I can't remember. And it just quickly happens. And then you're not even remembered at all. Life under the sun is like a. An endless treadmill. You prepare meals, you scrub the floor, you wash your clothes, you get up the next morning, what do you do? Scrub the floor, prepare clothes, you know, wash your clothes. You do the same thing. If you have a, if you have young children, you feel like, I, I clean this all up, and before I get up, it's messy again. I clean this up. It's the same thing over and over. Vanity, you want to say. That's, or a, a higher maid. I mean, whatever you want to say. <laughs> Even if you have your 15 minutes of fame. And everybody knows who you are for a moment. I read this very sobering statistic. It was, I, I really couldn't get my mind around it for YouTube. Every minute... 100 hours of video is uploaded to YouTube. So you make your big YouTube splash. One minute later, there's 100 new hours every minute following yours. See, it doesn't matter how much broadcasting you do of yourself. How much face you've got on your Facebook you're, you're this generation that makes a splash. And no matter how big you stretch out, it quickly recedes. And you're going to sort of read this conclusion in verse 9. You know, what has been is what will be. What has been done, well, it, it will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. And you get to the end of this poem And you feel like, I mean, I was thinking about this. I feel like I've been in a counseling session with Eeyore. You know, the donkey from Winnie the Pooh? You know, the guy's always down. And you're like, dude, I mean, this is a hard lift here. You probably remember one of these famous little sayings with Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh comes up on Eeyore and Eeyore says, it's it's still snowing. So it is, Winnie the Pooh says. And freezing, says Eeyore. Is it? Yes. However, we haven't had an earthquake lately. I mean, you're like, okay, dude, I can't help you. I mean, if it's just a giant treadmill, if it's all vanity, if it's just, well, it's snowing, but thank God we haven't had an earthquake, then we're, we're in trouble. But the preacher, see, he knows something very important. He has a destination. He's trying to use the despair to get you to turn and look in a different direction, to to draw your attention to a a particular conclusion. And he gives you a hint of that in verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil in which he toils under this sun? It's just a hint. But but he wants you to ask the question and say he's trying to say, see, if there's no life, if there's no promise of something beyond the the boundary of our own son, even if you could, even if for a brief moment, you could gain the whole world. If we just live in a closed system, even if you could gain the whole world, it would be it'd be vanity. If your whole life is just lived in this solar system, there's no meaning outside, there's no someone outside under the sun, then life is vanity. And he's trying to get your attention, get the reader's attention to say, stop looking at just these circumstances and realize there is something, there is someone beyond the horizon of this sun. Kohelet is a He's a hard-driving preacher. And we'll see over and over uh, this summer, he, he presses you up against these uh, ideas of the, the brevity of your life. He presses you up against wisdom. He presses you up against materialism. He presses you up against pleasure. And he, and he says they're all meaningless if everything's just done under the sun, then it's all vanity. It's, it's nothing more than just a big fog bank. It looks substantial, but whatever you try to grab hold of, whether it's pleasure or money or wisdom, it's just, it just escapes your grasp. Derek Kidner wrote an excellent commentary on Ecclesiastes, and this is what he, his conclusion is. Koheleth is demolishing an order to rebuild. He sees something that's being built the way the world thinks. And he's coming in first, especially in these opening verses. He's trying to demolish something so that something else can be rebuilt. He's demolishing an empty way of thinking. Once we stop pretending that what is mortal is enough for us, only then do we have the capacity for the eternal. See, once we stop pretending... What a great word for our culture. Once we stop pretending. Pretending that if I just get to this one thing, then I'll have it. Once we stop pretending, then we have the capacity for something eternal. So this opening poem the preacher uses, it's. This depressing conclusion is designed to to draw you to something beyond the sun, the maker of the sun. Chapter 12, verse 13, we sort of peek ahead and we say, well, we see where he's driving us. We're going to begin here this morning with the end in mind. Here's the end of the matter. After all of this information, and we'll get to this in August... After after everything's been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. See, life isn't vanity. Because it's not just life underneath the sun. Every single thing seen or in secret will stand with you before God. So it's not vanity. It's, It's the farthest thing from vanity. Once you realize that there is someone beyond the sun... Someone whom you have to stand and give an account to. Then every moment of your life is infused with meaning. It's hardly vanity. It's so worthwhile. He's trying to get your attention to say, don't just live your life underneath the sun. Live your life in quarter according to having to stand before God Almighty. So fear God and keep his commands. Live with that end in mind. And, of course, this probably doesn't need to be said, but we know, because we're always pointing this direction, we know that there is a real, true teacher, a real, true Son of God, a real, true King who did come. And His name is Jesus. And He has come also to deliver words of wisdom. I want to read just a passage, if you have a... Moment you want to turn to it, that would be good as well. Matthew sixteen, Matthew sixteen, and we're going to end here. Here the root, the real king has arrived. the The real son of David has arrived. In Matthew sixteen, he's talking to his disciples, and he says this and. In verse 21, they've been with him for a couple of years and he now begins to say to his disciples that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem. Verse 21, he's going to have to suffer many things. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to be risen from the grave. And then Peter takes him aside and rebukes him and says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Peter, but Jesus turned aside and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on things of God, but on the things of man. And then he addresses all of his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is the wisdom that he's giving him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? You hear that? It's an echo. Of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If I toil and I gain everything, well, what will it profit me? What's the answer Jesus gives? Vanity. It's meaningless. If you're toiling underneath the sun and you don't really realize that I am the son of God, then all that you could gather in your hands would still equal nothing. And so you have to give everything up and follow this one great person who is Jesus. And so when I read this and I would just want to close with these few remarks, it was it was sobering to think how easy it is to be one of the closest followers of Jesus and yet still have your mind set on the things of man. Think about this. Peter had been with Jesus for two years. He sent some of the most remarkable things, but yet Peter's still holding on to vanity. It's so easy to be so close to Jesus and yet so far from what he wants. It's so tempting to believe that by gaining the whole world that you've really gotten something valuable. Think again, I'm just thinking about the graduates, whether you're high school or college. What a temptation. Oh, if you could just have whatever your major is. Whatever your dream is, then you'll have it all. That's that's a lie. It's not bad to have those things, but if they're the end, if it's just underneath uh, underneath life underneath this sun, then it's vanity. So finally, it's so easy to forget that we live in an upside down world. What we consider gain is loss. And what is loss is gain in God's economy. Now, I've been a Christian for many years. And whenever I lose something, it's still not intuitive to me for me to say, what a gain. <laughs> that never is the first thing that comes out of my mouth. Oh, I've just lost that dream. Just lost that opportunity. Lost that relationship. I lost, what a gain. Whoop. Way to go, God. I'm gaining now. That's, it, that's never intuitive to me. Because I, I'm still working on trying to get right side up in this world. Our preacher for the summer, he's, he's using this weariness. He's using this heaviness. He's using this despair to draw us to somebody, to someone, that once you see him, every moment, even the secret moments, are infused with eternal meaning.